Well, welcome everyone. Welcome back to our series called The Straight. You're all laughing because of my trash can, aren't you? You're not used to seeing the trash can on stage, are you? I understand. Well, the re- I do have this here for a purpose. God used the trash can to teach me a lesson about myself and about life. And so I'd like to share that with you. Uh, I was having a typical crazy morning. I, I, I have a tendency to go too fast, to be in a hurry. And I had stayed up too late the night before. I had been busy doing activities that were piling up for me. And I had slept in. You know, I had pushed the snooze button too many times, and I was late, going to be late, for a meeting at church. And so I'm flying. It was one of those mornings where I about... Uh, you know, damage the back of my throat, brushing my teeth real fast, you know, jump in the shower, jump out. I'm still buttoning clothes as I'm going down the stairs, you know, and I grab a cold bagel and shove it in my mouth and a Diet Coke in my pocket, and I'm just flying, you know. I'm just struggling, looking at my time. I'm going to be so late. I'm going to be so late. Burst out the door. Now, this was a few years back on a similarly a cool fall day, but it was stormy. And the minute I stepped outside, the winds just about blew me over, and I knew that I needed a coat. And I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe it. So I run back in the house, get my coat on, run back out, run to my car. I'm going to be so late. I'm backing up, and then I realize it's garbage day. Everybody's got their trash cans out at the corner. And I'm like, ah! I put it in reverse, and I back up again jump out of my car, I grab the trash, and I'm, I'm running with this thing. I could compete in an Olympic event at this point. I'm running down the street, and uh, did I mention it was windy? It was really windy on this particular day, and a piece of garbage had just made this up enough that the wind could get under it. Yeah, I'm running, and bam! Right in my face. See, you women don't understand this, but I'll explain. When a guy gets hurt, he gets mad. And I, I suddenly had this hatred for this trash can. I, I shook it like this. I'm like, Ugh! I know it makes no sense at all, but I'm just telling you how it is. And so I started going again. You know, my nose is still stinging. And no kidding you, a second time, bam! And at that moment, something snapped in me. And I'm not proud to say this, but I threw the trash can on the ground, garbage spilling all over, you know, and I started kicking it. (laughs) Kicking, literally kicking the trash can. I mean, pastor in public, kicking the trash can. And after I kicked it maybe three times, it kind of dawned on me, what am I doing I'm, I'm losing it. And I, I uh, quickly picked it up, you know, hoping no one would see. I had to pick up the trash and put it back in here and uh, rolled it out to the street as fast as I could and got in my car. And as I'm driving, I'm thinking to myself, Jeff, get a grip, pal. <laughs> and as I started thinking about this snap, I realized something, a couple things actually. Number one, I'm going way too fast. I don't think this is how God wanted a morning to go. 
this sense of hurry and frantically rushing from place to place is just not the way I want to live. And secondly, I realize that when I'm in a rush, my soul's not in a good spot. Do you know what I mean? Hurry, speed kills. Our soul begins to shrivel up and it, it can snap, you know, my temper tantrum with the trash can as evidence of the fact that I was not filled with a peace, a joy that God wants me to be filled with. And as I prayed on that day, I said, God, I see it. I see my tendency to go too fast, and I see what it does to me, and I don't like it. Teach me another way. You know, when we look at the life of Jesus, do you find him kicking trash cans? Do you find Jesus in a frantic, panic rush? No. It's interesting. His life is filled with activity, but there always seems to be this tranquil peace about him as he's busy. Christ models for us a pace of life that is so compelling. Jesus, one of his titles, is the Prince of Peace. And the Bible says that he has come to bring us that peace as well. And that peace has to do mostly with peace with God, but it also has to do with an emotional tranquility of soul that God desires us all to enjoy. I want to be more like Jesus in this regard. As we study Christ in this series, The Stranger, the thing we're looking at today is how he is the Prince of Peace. And the way he lived, as we're about to see, models for us a pace of life that is good for the soul and not destructive like the way we often live. Remember this series? Let me just remind you real quick. Uh, We are in a series called The Stranger. It is being uh, a study of what took place in the town of Capernaum. This picture is of the synagogue in Capernaum. And Jesus lived there for three years as he did his public ministry. He stayed with his buddy Peter. When he arrived, he was a stranger. But the people of that town got to know him as we are through the encounters that he had with the people of the town of Capernaum. At first, he encountered a fisherman, and through that encounter, we discovered that Jesus is holy, the great I am, but he's also gracious. And then we looked at the outcast. This lady had been rejected by the people of the town, and she discovered through her encounter that this Jesus has a love from another planet, a love of another kind that We have never tasted before until we've encountered this Jesus Christ. And then last week, we looked at the officer. Remember the military officer who who said, I understand authority. In the military, we operate by authority. And he said, Jesus, I'm telling you, you've got authority of the spiritual realm. He said, just say the word and it will be done. And we talked about how we need to recognize the authority of Jesus Christ and invite him to demonstrate that authority in our lives. We need to say, just say the word, and I will obey. And this week, the title is The Mother-in-Law. Jesus encounters a mother-in-law, more specifically, Peter's mother-in-law. And and I'd like to give you the context of this verse before we dive into it. It's really fun. The context comes out of Mark 1, and Mark 1 provides for us maybe the only place in the Bible, where we get to see the whole day, a day in the life of Jesus Christ. 
He's in Capernaum, and this passage almost follows him from the morning of one day till the morning of the next day. And it's real fun to be able to look at what a day in Jesus' life was like. Let me just summarize some of it. On this particular day, it was a Sabbath, and Jesus had been invited to preach. And so he went down to that synagogue, and he preached. He poured his heart out into that sermon. In fact, the people said, wow, that sermon has an authority beyond anything any of our preachers have ever demonstrated. So he did a whale of a sermon. After the the sermon, there was a demon-possessed guy at the synagogue whom Jesus prayed for, and the man was healed and the demon was cast away. Jesus ministered to the crowds that were there and then made his way Peter's house for some football. That's what I do after church. I'm just assuming that, but maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's funny. I I, I relate to this moment because one of my favorite parts of a Sunday is after preaching and ministering when I'm just exhausted to finally come home to crash on the couch with some lunch and watch the second half of the Bears game. Ah, that's a beautiful time. Well, let's read about it. Mark 1, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Remember, Simon is Peter. Peter and Andrew shared a home, and they lived in this town of Capernaum. This house that this is about to take place in, it's so interesting. Not only do we know the town. Folks, I I stated this in the first week, and some of you doubted. Hopefully I can convince you now. We actually have the remnants of the actual house that Peter and Andrew lived in, where Jesus lived during those three years. You ready? Let me show you a photo of the town of Capernaum. Uh, This is an aerial photo. You see the Sea of Galilee here. It's right on the, the shoreline. Here is the white synagogue that we just read that Jesus preached at. You'll see here the remnants of first century houses. Uh, Today, this is an older photo, the excavation has extended and all these houses have been excavated as well. Well, Jesus, when he left the synagogue, would have walked down this street and he would have entered a house right here. And you say, Peter lived in a UFO. You know, that's a strange looking, you know, octagonal building. Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's actually a Byzantine church. Byzantines were folks who around the 400, 500 AD era, and they would make octagonal churches. You'll see there's actually three walls, one, two, three, you know, different layers. You can imagine what it looked like. It was only octagonal if the space was being commemorated for its significance. And so it begs the question, back around 400 AD, why did the Byzantines build this place around this church? Well, they didn't know for a long time until about 30 years ago when some archaeologists said, we need to go deeper yet. And upon going deeper, they discovered, just as there are first century houses here, there was a first century house here. And as they looked more closely at the room of the house that's under the inner octagon, they discovered that the room was a first century room, the, the, the stone dated to the first century, but it had clearly been coated with plaster on the inside and been painted, and no other houses were coated with plaster, and this plaster dated to the first century. And so they're like, wait a minute, in the first century, in the, the days of Peter or his kids, 
Christians had identified this room in this town as so sacred that they wanted to smear the the room with plaster and do ornate uh, paintings and Christian words of praise and prayer over all of the walls. And it begs the question, what did those first century Christians have? Why did they have such an obsession with that room of that house? And the only logical conclusion is it must have been important to Christianity. When you read about early travelers to Capernaum, when I say earlier, people like in 300 AD, they say that they went to the place of worship in the house of Peter. And Peter's name is actually written a number of places on the walls of that inner room. And let me show you now a blueprint of the house. It's so fun. Because as they've excavated what the house looked like underneath that octagonal church, here's what they discovered. A very typical multi-generational house. You see, they would live in houses that had an open courtyard surrounded by rooms. And when I say multi-generational, that reflects well with the passage because we know Peter and Andrew are living there. Peter's married. He has a family. We can assume Andrew does as well. Peter's mother-in-law is living there. We're about to find that out. And so here's what the house looked like. You ever wonder where, what Jesus, you know, when he woke up in the morning and he left to go out to get breakfast? This is, you know, which room did Jesus live in? Maybe it was this room. This is the venerated room, the room where the plaster was smeared on the inside of the walls, where it was used as a worship center. And we can speculate, was it because Jesus lived in that particular room? Maybe. I'll give you another possibility. Uh, One of the passages of the Bible says that Jesus was teaching in the room he was staying in once, and they lowered a paralyzed man through the ceiling. Do you remember that? That was in Capernaum, potentially that room being why it's venerated. Isn't that cool? So fun. Here you'll see the entrance to the house. And as we progress in this passage, the drama that we're about to read about occurs right there. So uh, let's dive into it. Verse 30, Mark 1, verse 30. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So no bear's game for Jesus. So he went up to her, He took her hand, he helped her up, and the fever left her immediately, and she began to wait on them. Isn't that amazing? Talk about a miracle. Jesus grabs her hand, and as he does, the fever is gone, and this woman immediately starts to wait on them. I love that. That reminds me of my mother-in-law. She has the gift of hospitality, and if sickness held her back, the minute she felt better, she would be rushing around waiting on people. So she is healed. And then it says in verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed. So you know what's happening? The reputation of Jesus is spreading through town. He had healed somebody at the synagogue that morning. He had healed his mother-in-law and everybody's starting to realize the power that Christ wields. And so they came. It says the whole town gathered at the door. Remember that door we just saw? That's the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out many demons. So this day was jam-packed with activity. Would you agree? He's up 
preaching in the morning. He's ministering to people after church. He's healing Peter's mother-in-law. He then spends the whole night late into the evening continuing to minister to the people as they show up at the door of his house. Next morning, verse 34. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful picture? I can imagine Jesus getting up early, still dark. He's got to tiptoe, close doors real carefully. He doesn't want to wake up everybody else in the house. Grabbed a bagel, maybe a Diet Coke, and he snuck out of the house, went, I'm guessing, down to the Sea of Galilee. It's just gorgeous there. And he sat down all alone watching the sunrise to have a glorious time of prayer with the Father. Well, look what happens next. Next verse. Simon and his companions went to look for Jesus. And when they found him, they exclaimed. So they're, they're lit. You exclaim. That's a word of passion. Everyone is looking for you. Apparently, Jesus had sent away the crowds, or at least finished ministering to the crowds in the evening. But first thing in the morning, they're showing up again. They're knocking at the door. Everyone is looking for you. So can you imagine poor mother-in-law? She's, she's, we already know she's got a gift of hospitality, and so this is a nightmare. I can imagine her saying, welcome, welcome, we're so glad you're here. I've got some rolls in the oven, and here's some tea. Everybody drink. We're, I know you're here for Jesus, and he's got to be around. We're looking for him, and we're going to find him soon. You just stay calm, you know, and everybody's freaking out. And when these disciples come, and they say, they exclaim, what are you doing? Don't you realize everybody's looking for you? What is the implication of their tone and of their statement? It's Jesus, you blew it. These people are coming in mass and they have expectations and you have disappointed. This decision you made about sneaking out of the house before any of us knew about it or knew where you were going, this hiding behind the bush so you can have your whatever you're doing, this is just wrong. Look at the disappointed people. Jesus, bad call. And does Christ say, oh my, you're right, I blew it. No. Jesus has absolute confidence in the decision that he made. He does not apologize for it. In fact, let me read his response. Verse 38, Jesus replied, you know what? Let's go somewhere else. Let's go to the nearby villages so I can preach there. That is why I have come. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, guys, I'm putting words in Christ's mouth, but this is the the essence of what he's saying here. I'm sorry if you're disappointed, but I'm not going back to minister to those people. They have expectations. I'm not going to meet them. In fact, I'm leaving town this morning. I'm going to go to other nearby towns and preach there. That is why I I came. Points to his confidence that he knows what the Father wants him to do. I know the purpose of this day, and it's not to meet their needs or their expectations, but to move on. This is amazing. Jesus is showing a a confidence that he knows what the Father wants him to do and will not be swayed by the expectations of the masses. Isn't that interesting? 
Uh, there's a verse in John 17 where Jesus is praying at the end of his three-year ministry and at the end of his life. And he says these stunning words. He says, I have finished the work you gave me to do, Lord. I've finished it. And I could argue, you haven't finished it. The whole world's still a mess, Jesus. There are so many people who need salvation and need ministry and need healing, and you're claiming to be done? Jesus says, I'm done with what the Father asked me to do. I'm not done meeting everybody's expectations, but I'm done meeting his expectation. Folks, this passage has been so meaningful to me for a number of reasons, and I'd like to offer a few of the applications that I have benefited from to you. And the first is this. Who is the master of your time? Who determines the pace at which you live? Who determines the commitments that you make? You know, for most of us, it is other people. Either by their expectations or by their example, our schedules are a product of our culture very often. You know, we look at other people and they go, wow, they got their kids and football and dance and theater and piano lessons and uh, AP classes. We got to do it all there. If they're doing it, we got to do it. And, and we got to be involved in this activity and make this commitment. And we get so busy trying to keep up with the Joneses. Or there are expectations, you know, where friends say, you really need to be there for me. Mother-in-law says, I expect you guys to be there. (laughs) Whatever it may be, we are people pleasers, many of us, and desiring to make everybody happy. And so we say, yes, 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 yes. And so I think maybe we Christians are the worst at that. And the result is this frenetic pace of life that is killing our souls. Jesus didn't live that way. Who was the master of his schedule? The Father. And Jesus said, all I try to do is tune in to what the Father wants me to say yes to and what he wants me to say no to. And I'm not listening to the cry of the crowd. I'm going to listen to the cry of the Father. And folks, we need to do the same. We need to say, you know, Lord, I am going to lay out my schedule. Maybe this is a good activity for you to do. Lay out your schedule. What do you do on a Monday, a Sunday? What is taking up your time? And go through prayerfully and say, is this your will? Is this your will? Because when we do, it just may be we feel the Spirit of God calling us to simplify and to disappoint by saying no in various areas in order to scale back our lives to a place of sanity. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage that can remind us that even if people say, what are you doing? You're letting me down. I don't want to let you down, but I got to follow the Father, and that's what God is calling me to. I'm sorry. Jesus shows us what it's like to live to an audience of one and to march to the drumbeat of one and to follow the will of the Father in creating his schedule. Well, that's the first takeaway is who is the master of your time? Is it the culture, the people around you, or is it the Lord? The second one is this. If we do wisely submit our schedule to the Lord, what will he do with our schedule? What will it look like? 
And if we use this day in the life of Jesus as an example of the kind of schedule that God leads us to, we see two principles that I'd like to point out. And I'd like to use two Latin phrases to point them out, if you'll allow me. And, and the first Latin phrase is one called carpe diem. Remember that one? I'm a big Robin Williams fan. We'll miss him dearly. I remember Dead Poet Society is the first time I heard carpe diem. Carpe diem means seize the day. Make the most of your time. And we see that in the life of Jesus. Is Jesus laying around on the couch playing video games all day? No, he is not. Jesus is passionately engaged. He's busy in his engagement with kingdom advancing activity. I'll just remind you, remember he was preaching in the morning at the synagogue. He was ministering in the lobby to the demon-possessed person. He was healing Peter's mother-in-law. He was ministering to the line of people that formed at the house late into the night. We see Jesus diving in. And for some of us, we need to carpe diem more. There is a sluggardliness, a slothfulness, a laziness that characterizes our lives. We squander time. Time is one of the most precious commodities in our possession. And for some of us, we surf the internet and waste time. I mentioned playing video games. I I, I mentioned watching TV. There's so many ways that you can just squander time. And God may be calling some of us off the couch and say, I want you to be busy in serving people and obeying me and advancing my cause. And you say, well, is that all? Is it just carpe diem? Is it just frantic busyness? Of course not. There's another thing that comes out in this passage, and that's the second Latin phrase, vacare deo, which means vacation with God. Isn't that cool? Vacation with God. Vacare means to empty oneself of responsibility. It's the word we get vacation from. And Deo is God. And so Vacare Deo is a life marked with periodic vacations with God. And that's what Jesus did in Mark 1.35. In fact, let's go to Mark 1.35 and return to that one more time. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, got away. He went to a solitary place. He hid (laughs) where he could pray. That's a vacation with God. This is a daily vacation with God that seemed to be a part of Jesus' routine where he would say, take some time of the day and say, this time I'm going to boundary and protect it and I'm going to keep it from frantic busyness and I am going to enjoy time with God. Do you have a daily Vacare Deo, vacation with God. Do you you grace yourself with that blessing? Do you have a solitary place where you love to get away and just enjoy some downtime with the Lord? I have a number of those solitary places. One of them is at a local restaurant where I frequently will have breakfast and my devotional time over breakfast. Uh, I'll read the Bible. Some of you are like, what restaurant? I'm not going to tell you what restaurant because 
I'm hiding. I don't want you to know, but I go through my routine of ordering my Egg McMuffin and then getting a <laughs> coffee. And, and those moments are glorious for me and refreshing to my soul. I would challenge everybody to have a daily Vacare Deo, sometime every day, that you allow your inner RPMs to slow down, where you take deep breaths, where you allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. You study His Word. You pray. You vacation with God. I would also point out, can we go back to the Vacare Deo and uh, the Carpe Diem? Uh, I would also point out that there are weekly Vacare Deos. You say, what are they? The Sabbath. See, God said, I want you to work six days and then have one day off. And that day off is a precious time for you to slow down and for you to enjoy relaxation and for you to worship and for you to fellowship with family and friends and for your soul to be restored. God said, don't neglect the the weekly Vicare Deo. It's in the Ten Commandments to ensure we develop that kind of rhythm of life. Well, one more I just point out, and that's sometimes an annual Vicare Deo. Sometimes people look at their vacation as an unspiritual thing. I really believe that a vacation can reflect the heart of God and be a gift from him if we treat it as such, where we say, Lord, thank you. We're getting out of Dodge. We're going, and we're going to relax and laugh and create memories and let you join us on vacation. It's not a vacation from God. It's a vacation with God so that our souls can be refreshed. This is the balanced pattern of life Jesus modeled that we must embrace. Carpe diem, vacare deo. Is that your life? You know, I want to share in closing a failure in my own life that was extremely painful. I uh, learned this lesson the hard way. The date was January the 6th, 2002, one of the worst days of my life. I had been neglecting the example of Jesus and living a frantic, frantic life. Go, 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 go. I thought I was impressing the Lord with my level of service to him. I thought I was winning the world by being a people pleaser and meeting everybody's expectations. Yes, 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 yes. And I was just going so fast. No Sabbath. I I work seven days a week. Very little quiet time. I would open the Bible, maybe five minutes, slam it. Didn't have time to, to sit and relax. And it was building up in me like a disease. My soul was rotting. And on that day, that Sunday, January the 6th, 2002, 12 and a half years ago, I think I had a nervous breakdown. I was preaching, and all of a sudden, as I was preaching, my heart started racing. I mean, for no reason. My heart was just beating. My breathing started to get choppy. I I couldn't, I could inhale. I couldn't exhale. The room started to move in my eyes and get foggy. And that's not a good time to have a breakdown when you're up in front of your whole church. And I tried to muscle my way through that sermon, but people could tell something was very wrong. I was saying things in 
kind of, you know, a stuttered voice, and everybody's just kind of looking at me like, stop, please, stop. And so I did. I ended my sermon early, and some friends rushed up to me, and they said, Jeff, what's up? One of my friends said, your eyes are like fluttering, shaking back and forth. I immediately went to the doctor. He sent me to a psychiatrist. It was a dark time in my life. And they all said the same thing. You're going too fast. My wife ministered to me most powerfully when she said, Jeff, I want to share with you a parable. She goes, I read this in a book just this week, and I thought of you. This is you. And when I say a parable, I want to be clear. It's not a biblical parable. It's simply a a story that has a moral lesson to it, a fictional story with a moral lesson. And it ministered, it wrecked me in a beautiful way. My my wife shared it. She said, "Uh, Jeff, it's a story of a, a boy with a wagon. And one day God came to him and said, hey, uh, would you mind putting three rocks in the wagon and taking them up the hill outside of town? And the, the young man said, yeah, God, if I could do that as a gift to you, it'd be a delight to serve you. So the Lord put three rocks in his wagon and he started off towards that hill to bring them up to the top as an act of service to God. Well, he bumped into one of his friends on the way, and his friend said, where are you going? And when he explained, his friend said, you're going up the hill? Fantastic. It just so happens. I have a rock I've been meaning to bring to the top of the hill. Since you're going that way, would you mind taking mine too? And being a good-hearted guy, the, the, the young man said, sure, I'd love to. I'd love to serve you. So he threw his rock in, went a little further, and there was someone that he knew who offered him a glass of Lemonade. He said, man, you're working hard. Here, have some lemonade to quench your thirst. And he goes, thank you very much. And as he drank the lemonade, the guy said, you know, since you're going up the hill with those rocks, it turns out I had four that I needed brought up there. And I'm not, you know, forcing you, but you're going that way. And the guy felt like, you know, he gave me a glass of lemonade. I kind of owe him. And so he said, sure, throw him in. And that happened a number of times until the wagon was loaded with rocks. And as he struggled, his legs grew weary. And as the hill grew more steep, he started to ache and sweat and strain. And it became too much. And after just pushing himself to the point of collapse, he fell to the ground, looked up to heaven and shook his fist and said, How dare you, God? How can you possibly expect me to do this? And the Lord in his grace showed up, walked up to the wagon, looked at it, looked at the young man, started taking rocks out and said, I didn't ask you to carry this one. And I didn't ask you to carry this one. And I didn't ask you to carry this one. And so God got back to the three rocks. He goes, I don't know if you remember, but this is what I asked you to carry. And the guy said, oh, yeah. And he started pulling the three racks, and he could do so with relative ease. A spring in his step, joy in his heart, and he made it to the top of that hill. And my wife, after sharing the story, she said, I think you're trying to carry racks God never asked you to carry. She was right. My life was a frantic effort to please and satisfy the expectations of others and not the Lord. And I was so convicted, I repented of my sin. I rushed out 
and started looking for three rocks. <laughs> and I found three round rocks that I keep on my desk to this day for 12 and a half years. And I look at them on a daily basis, reminding me in the Old Testament, sometimes rocks were like a monument or a memorial to bring people back to an important conviction or decision or pledge that they had made. And those three rocks remind me, follow, for the sake of your soul, follow the leadership of the Lord only as you carefully craft a daily schedule and routine that will honor him and make your soul flourish with him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we repent of our sin. We realize, God, that we have so often turned our lives into a blur of activity, racing and running. We've ignored you, God, in an effort to impress others or make ourselves feel good. Who knows what the reason? We repent of that folly. And our souls are in need of some healing. Would you guide us? Guide us on a process of simplification, of reduction, of establishing these vicare deo habits. And God, I pray that we would be the recipients of new life and peace with you, having followed the example of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name.